Hi everyone, and welcome to my newest series, Sing About Me. Like many of you, the anxiety for the future I feel is looming over like a cloud regarding the upcoming election and issues surrounding the state of our nation come November. But I recognize how interconnected and critical these next few conversations are in this series if we want to move forward into a united and progressive future. So comes the birth of Sing About Me. Now, I had planned to say something completely different for my introduction, and I was conflicted on whether or not to bring attention to the indictment surrounding Breonna Taylor's case. And after some thought, I decided not to, because honestly, I didn't want her death to be spoken about in vain. Then I saw the fundraiser for the officer who shot the fatal shot that killed her, asking for support so that he can comfortably retire, and people actually donating. So now we're talking about it. She hadn't made it to 26. Does the world not get that? She had not made it to 26. I'm 26. And I feel like there's still so much for me to experience in life. And so honestly, when I think of her death, I'm sad. And then usually how it happens is I start to reflect. I reflect on an America that Malcolm spoke of. And I hate that we haven't moved beyond that. It's not just that a white man with the power that he had within that community killed someone. He killed a black woman. And so even though we marched with her name in our mouths, along with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, her case faced a different fate. Attorney General Daniel Cameron so blatantly failed at a chance for a real pursuit of justice and disregarded this young woman's life by not charging a single officer for her murder. I see a young, dark-skinned black woman's life made into memes, t-shirt graphics, but not protected. I don't know. I feel like we all failed her in a way, her and her family. And those words, the most unprotected person in America is the black woman, stings a little more. And so I'm angry and I'm sad. And I recognize that there are levels to this. This conversation serves as a way of peeling back one of those layers. And if you don't think that colorism plays a role in this, sit on this. In a study published by Harvard Department of Sociology, The Color of Punishment, it reports that darker-skinned black people make up nearly two times more of the prison population than lighter-skinned black people. And in fact, lighter-skinned black people make up about the same number as whites behind bars. Throughout the conversation, we will dive into colorism and its history, functionality, and how it's destructive, particularly in the black community as a way of metaphorically singing about these issues. My hope is that we come away from this conversation with greater knowledge, empathy, and even questions so that when it's our time to sing about these issues, I'm sorry, when it's your time to sing about these issues, you'll be ready to have the hard conversations, but with love. This week's episode features three black women in a talk I'm calling A Word from Our Sisters on Colorism, Part 1. I hope you enjoy, and with that being said, let's get into it. 
Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> so before we even get started, if everybody wants to kind of introduce yourself, um, some of you guys know each other, some of you guys don't. So I think just a quick introduction. My name is Kashana. I am Rashida's sister, um, her twin. Um, I went to TCNJ, finished my bachelor's and master's there as well. Um, bachelor's in urban elementary education and history. And then I um, did my master's in urban ed. It was like a five-year program. Currently, I am working at Foundation Academy as a kindergarten teacher in Trenton, New Jersey, virtually. And I'm working as an art teacher for the Block LLC, teaching fine arts to middle school students, also doing that virtually. And yeah, that's pretty much about me. This is Tori. Hi. Um, Sheeta and I met whenever we were working on our master's degrees at Parsons. I'm now working as an analyst in the marketplace strategy and research department at Condé Nast. And yeah, that's good. <laughs> and I'm Santria. Um, I've known Rashida and Kashana since we were in like kindergarten, I think. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, I graduated from Rutgers from New Brunswick campus. I majored in history, political science, dual major and communications. And I too am really excited for this conversation. Thank you guys for your introduction. And so I thought of this conversation as a branch of some of the topics and things that we discussed in the last podcast. Um, and so today's conversation is going to be on colorism. So I wanted to bring all of you women to the table so we can discuss how it harms our communities. And so before we get into any of that, I want to dive in with this idea of colorism and how it came about historically. Um, I can jump in. So just as a, I guess, a general understanding of colorism, um, colorism like has existed in various different societies pre-colonial era, and it had certain connotations class. So if you had, you know, quote unquote, fair or pale skin, it's because you were higher class, you didn't work in agriculture you mm -hmm. stayed within the house if you had darker skin it was because you worked within agriculture you worked in trade some sort of like outside position um and so it had class connotations um and then once colorism met colonialism and imperialism and whiteness it joined the class of you know classism and racism and it became like a tool to separate Black people uh, within the diaspora, like just to separate us amongst each other. So, you know, during slavery, we were stripped of our language, our religion, our tribal connections, our personal belongings, our names, um, et cetera. And also colorism and dividing us amongst skin tone was also a tool used to divide and conquer us. Um, so you had filled slaves who were not given the same access to privileges as house slaves. And so that's not to say that there wasn't abuse happening, <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. to house slaves. Mm -hmm. There was rape, there was mental, emotional, and physical abuse there as well, but there was also the access to freedom papers, mm -hmm. education, um, 
preferential treatment because usually if you were in the house, it was because you were a descendant of the enslaver, um, inheritances, etc. And so therefore light skin became a safety net within blackness. If you had light skin, you got access to more things. If you had light skin, you were safer because you had more access to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so if you were dark skinned, you had less opportunity to get those things as easily, if at all. Um, And then, you know, you fast forward to Jim Crow and then now within our own black spaces, we're using colorism as a criteria for access within our own communities. Mm -hmm. So the paper bag test and how that was used as entry into different organizations, into parties, just anywhere where we had access to be able to say, you're welcome in and you're not, that was something that was used. Um, So basically the paper bag test was literally take a paper bag, put it next to your skin. If you were darker than the paper bag, you did not get access to this particular institution, this particular Mm -hmm. space. And then fast forward to today and, you know, (laughs) it's not as loud as a paper bag test, but, you know, we're dealing with the consequences of this. So one thing that I always like to note with colorism is that this was a tool that white people were very aware that they were using as a tool to divide and conquer us. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) My grandfather even told us one time that, the kids that he grew up with told him that they gave him access to certain things because of his skin color. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was a lighter skinned man with hazel eyes and like loose curly hair. So wow. it was very much a tool that was very much made aware in black minds as well as white minds. We internalized that mm-hmm. and we took that in. And so then this idea of light skin being safe became light skin being desirable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so now that's why we're dealing with what we're dealing with today, where you can watch a Tyler Perry film and you have the quote unquote bad guy who's dark skin yeah. and the mm-hmm. quote unquote good guy who's light skin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally using that as a dynamic to build a storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are just things that are continuing to hurt our community. I agree with that. And I feel like even mm-hmm. with light skin people, it's like, like how you said, it's now desirable, but it's like essentially it's desirable because you're closer to white. Exactly. So it's not necessarily mm-hmm. like, oh, because you're better. It's still demeaning. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and I think that point is something that is really important not to forget. The fact that it's not that they're liking you because you're a lighter skinned black mm-hmm. person. They're liking you because, you know, there's this idea that possibly there's some whiteness in there quote-unquote saving Mm -hmm. you from Mm -hmm. the blackness that Mm -hmm. is within you um you know I think it's interesting that you were talking about the experiences of your grandfather because um it sounds very similar to experiences that my grandmother had growing up in the south I'm from Texas um and my family Mm -hmm. is originally from Louisiana and on my dad's side they're Mm -hmm. Creole so they're very very light um and my grandmother could pass for a white person and my aunt could as well, but my father and his brother couldn't. So even just within their family, whenever they would go out into the country and things like that, my aunt didn't have to do any of the housework or she, you know, she didn't have to do any work at all because her fair skin, you know, they, she didn't have to be kept out of trouble, but because my uncle and my father were much darker than she was, you know, they needed to have their hands dirty. They needed to be doing Mm -hmm. things, you know, she didn't have to do anything 
I don't know. I just found that very interesting that even within our own communities, we do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So what are some ways then, because I completely agree with everything that you guys have said. um, And I think part of the problem within our own community and the way that we've internalized these beliefs is miseducation. Mm -hmm. Um, So can we, if you guys want to kind of touch on some ways that we've been misinformed or miseducated about ourselves to the extent where this is still being able to thrive in our communities so much. I think part of it is like representation has Mm -hmm. a really big factor. Um, You know, we're very much influenced by like the media, by what we see on TV, even as little kids, Mm -hmm. what we see in cartoons and everything. The black person is always a sidekick. And it's like Mm -hmm. seeing little Mm -hmm. things like that just throughout media, throughout books. Um, I remember I took a multicultural class on like literature and how black people are even portrayed in books and Mm -hmm. it's like seeing us not as the quote-unquote heroes of the story and Mm -hmm. always seeing us as like the other always just digesting that consistently we start seeing ourselves less than we start not valuing ourselves Mm -hmm. and I feel like that ties into oh even natural hair thinking about like our hair Mm -hmm. textures and how the natural hair movement that's going on right now. But a lot of the times when we see it, it's mainly like the loose curls Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful, but that's not the only type of beautiful hair texture there is. Mm -hmm. And we're not focusing on like the four C textures, but even those, those names that we put on it, it's nappy. It's always negative. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we're still, even though we're trying to push past it, we're still not doing it to the greatest extent Mm -hmm. to where we're now, we're really valuing ourselves, our darker complexion, our, um, our hair texture, like it's still within the movement. It's still not being pushed fully. And it's Mm -hmm. all about, I feel like representation and how we're being viewed and how we're taking that in. No, I definitely agree with the idea of how we're being represented is, you know, causing a lot of disconnect within us. Um, Going back to what someone said earlier about how Tyler Perry creates this narrative where, you know, the darker skin man is evil. And then, you know, the woman is saved by a lighter skin man, but even beyond that, just in media in general, that they always create that narrative where somehow the lighter skin person is, you know, has this perceived innocence and the mm-hmm. aggressor is always this mm-hmm. darker skinned individual. And then it just becomes ingrained in us that, you know, especially for women, um, I think I think you had somewhere in, you know, in our notes where we were talking about the fact that, you know, darker skinned black women are often equated to being animals of some kind you know Tiana Mm -hmm. Taylor is often Mm -hmm. thought of you know she's being called a pit bull and things like that is very it's a very aggressive dog um and you know that's not a compliment (laughs) but then Mm -mm. you know the comments around someone like Saweetie are very different um you know both of them are very beautiful women but tiana taylor is being equated to an animal and sweetie isn't like you know their innocence is Mm -hmm. protect and their femininity is read very differently and it's very interesting how like that's different i feel like for women because then for men obviously the darker Mm -hmm. skin is seen as aggressive and for a man that's a good thing whereas light-skinned men are you know they're quote-unquote sissies or people will use gay slurs against them and things like that just based on lighter skin being thought of as being more feminine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's right and I like how you mentioned um 
femininity and mm-hmm. how it's seen within blackness as black women because even the idea of being a dark-skinned black girl is equated with being more masculine versus if you're lighter skin your femininity is protected is mm-hmm. inherent is expected and so really it it just puts everyone into a box and so if you're light skin you have to be like this you may be a tomboy mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know you may be the biggest tomboy in the world but your femininity is expected because of yeah. your light skin and you you are expected to perform it in a very 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 specific way mm-hmm. And I think um, even when you brought up like Ari Lennox and um, Tiana Taylor and how they were um, they were called dogs and like their features mm. were called ugly and all these like mm. nasty words. And it's interesting because it's like when those features are put on, like how you said, like a Saweetie mm-hmm. or even a white girl, like a Kardashian mm-hmm. or something, and they take on black features, it's now fetishized. But when it's on a darker skinned woman or a black woman, it's not seen that way. Like our features are only attractive when it's on somebody either lighter or white. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how these things are read differently across different faces. You know, like you mentioned the Kardashians and how they can take the entire aesthetic of a black woman and it's seen as beautiful. But then you have black women who actually look like this and we're quote unquote biting off of the Kardashian trend or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we're seen as being inappropriate. Yes. Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're inappropriate. Like the Kardashians can wear that and white women who are appropriating blackness, they, oh, they're fine. But you, you just being you like, no, Mm -hmm. that's inappropriate. The way that those clothes are fitting you, you can't be around children like that. You can't be around men like that. Like, what are you doing? And it's like, I, this is what I look like, ma'am. What? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Like these people got surgery to look like this. I, I just look like this. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was deep. Cause that reminds me of like, even in high school, um, I remember, you know how you can't wear certain clothing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. too short, too whatever. Um, and I remember a lot of times when it's like a black girl would wear shorts, she would get in trouble for it. But yep. versus a white girl who would wear short shorts, she wouldn't. And it was interesting because one of the principals had spoke mm-hmm. up mm-hmm, and said uh, the reason why is because basically you guys have butts and they don't. And I'm just like, that's mm. extremely inappropriate. Yes. But yeah. it's just very, it's like the rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't go both ways. Yeah. And it's also hypersexualizing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of go to that because I know for some people you can hear this and think, okay, but why, how does this connect? Mm-hmm. So if we can kind of go back historically and trace where these tropes of Black women are so either hypersexualized and their bodies being policed more. Well, I mean, I feel like one of the biggest examples um, is Sarah Bartman. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way that her body is shaped, obviously, is very natural. But when we look at the fashion of that day, these, you know, these women were trying to emulate that already with all of the bustles mm-hmm. and the hoop skirts and things like that. They were trying to create that, mm-hmm. you know, small waist huge Mm. posterior aesthetic and so to see a woman where this is happening naturally Mm. all of a sudden like 
it just it didn't compute and then it was seen as being hypersexual because she wasn't attaching anything to her body to look like this this is just Mm -hmm. who she is so Mm -hmm. then it became an inherent sexuality put onto her body even though this is just how she is i think that then carried on throughout history because black women are a little bit curvier you know we have a little bit fuller hips you know um we're fuller in the bust and things like that and because of the shape of our bodies then all of a sudden that means well we have this animalistic and inherent sexuality within us and you know that's why especially white men were so terrified of black men because they will they have this animalistic sexuality that's just going to attract all of our women and they're going to flock to um the black men and it starts very, very young. Like, I think we've all probably had experiences where we're told not to wear certain things because Mm -hmm. I, you know, one thing for me, I couldn't wear shorts with writing across the back of them because my mom didn't want anything to accentuate my butt and have Mm -hmm. people looking at me, even though I was a child. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's deep. One thing that I will say, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to say that's just like the adultification of like black mm-hmm. girls, too. And I think Definitely. that's what we can get into later. Um, but, Tori, what were you going to say? Um, in the history of Sarah Bartman, you know, her trying to have control of her person as much as possible in the situation that she was put in being, you know, in a human zoo, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she would really try. This is what I mean by like, you really have to respect the ancestors because anything that they did was a form of protest. So Sarah's situation was just mm. so specific that even in her, you know, performing femininity and performing um, in a very specific way that would be accepted by white people and by whiteness. And then also in her trying to take control back of her body and say, I'm not doing this show today. These people can't come in. Like, you know what I mean? And dropping access to being able to look at her and then people make money Mm -hmm. off of her. That was something that was trying to be done as well. But the fact of the matter is that scientists had already taken modes of her body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like that whole era of false science to prove the superiority of whiteness, to prove the animalisticness of blackness and mm-hmm. use that via the black female body. So the black female body is always under scrutiny, has always been under scrutiny, literally like picked and prodded at as a way to get at like the proof of see we are better like mm-hmm. you know to validate whiteness and its position within the hierarchy that it's put itself in and then there's also the jezebel myth that um being attached to black women that also continues to i guess in their minds validate their reasons to treat mm-hmm. us subhuman so yeah it's like it started very early. But when we get into this idea of colorism, how does that in the Black community show itself in other ways? I have a perfect example. Um, I think we've all probably seen this video. It went viral of the beautiful little Black girl who was getting her hair done by her mom. And Mm -hmm. like, I literally can't even think about that video because it makes me want to cry. Mm -hmm. But like, um her sitting there getting her hair done and her say oh my gosh look I'm so ugly Mm -hmm. and 
that was a intimate moment between mother and daughter that just so happened to get caught on camera. And she wasn't expecting to catch that. She had no idea that her daughter had internalized something like that. And, you know, having to address that in a way that didn't like traumatize her further because the mother was shocked just as much. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like this stuff will never not be shocking. Um, And so the daughter saying like, oh yeah, I'm so ugly. And like smiling and laughing about it a little bit because this is what she's hearing on the playground. Mm -hmm. This is what other little kids are saying to her. So literally this child who probably was like in what kindergarten or first grade hasn't even had the opportunity as soon as she was supposed to be with her peers and supposed to be amongst children who, you know, children are supposed to be pure and unbiased. Mm -hmm. That biasy is so deep that other children are saying it to other children. Mm -hmm. And she internalized it and said, oh, well, this is, this is a true thing about me. Like that was one moment that was caught on camera. That's every day, Mm -hmm. like around the world every day. And not just with black women, with dark-skinned little Indian mm-hmm. girls, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I saw another video of a dark-skinned Indian girl saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm not the good sister and I'm the ugly sister yeah. because I'm the darker sister. Mm-hmm. Her older sister having to explain that away and say, you don't say that. Like, colorism is global. Anti-blackness yeah. is global. Mm-hmm. This is happening every single day. Mm-hmm. Like, via big moments like that and smaller little moments that build up to those big moments where it has to get addressed. Absolutely. And I think that um, what you said is so true because it's not just in the Black community, it's in other communities as well. Mm -hmm. I know I've had several conversations with like coworkers and like um, other people and friends where we talk about how in your own family at times, lighting the race so that you're not, um, you know, producing darker skin children Mm -hmm. so that you know your child becomes more beautiful because they're lighter and it's like that becomes internal and just like how that child is that young and sees themselves that way because it's like when you start seeing yourself like that you start seeing less of yourself right absolutely and you know you know I think that y'all are making a good point of it's not always these big overt gestures you know it's hearing something on the playground even just the comments from your family members like, oh, make sure you don't stay out in the sun too long. You don't want to mm-hmm. get darker. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, staying out in the sun too long, yeah, is bad for your skin or whatever. But the way that you're positioning it, it makes it seem like getting darker is the problem. Bad, yeah. I feel like there's just such a cognitive dissonance. And that's why I feel like so many um, darker skinned Black people grow up not knowing where to position their skin because you're getting it from all angles. You're getting it from people that look like you. You're getting it from media outlets that look nothing like you. It's, you know, it's hard. I was going to say to piggyback off of that, like just the idea of because there's so many microaggressions that are made against our skin, black girls from the minute that they are able to start, you know, taking in language and understand the words that are being said to them and about them to like, there is so much unlearning that needs to Mm -hmm. be done once you reach a certain age. And, you know, for some people that unlearning is unlearning and relearning anything is difficult. Um, And unfortunately not everyone gets the opportunity to unlearn those generational curses. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, I think that's one of the biggest things for me is like, 
there are people who don't believe that colorism exists. But I also understand, like, I didn't know that colorism was a tool that we used amongst ourselves in the Black community until I got to college. Mm -hmm. I have always been, like, a self-learner. And so I Mm -hmm. always knew it existed. But I always thought this is a tool that white people use against us. And when Mm -hmm. I was in high school, that's what I saw. Mm -hmm. I saw white people pick the the darkest skinned person in the room it didn't matter like what skin tone you were as long as you were the darkest person in the mm-hmm. room as soon as the lights go out what they say oh I'll where did someone so go <laughs> like you know yeah. and it didn't matter like it did not matter like if you were literally the darkest person in the school or not you just had to be the darkest person in the room mm-hmm. you could look like michael ely you you still the darkest person in the room oh lights go out you can't see it so and that was coming from non-black people mm-hmm. and white people specifically so, so- i didn't I've met a handful, like literally I can count them on my hand, a handful of people, less than a handful, who I met who had spoken directly to me that internalized idea of light skin being better. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, or a certain texture of hair being better. And I didn't know until I got to college that was so widespread. And I was like, my mind mm-hmm. was blown. But wow. then I- And you went to Rutgers. Yeah, and I, right? yeah, I went to Rutgers, yeah. And Mm -hmm. my mind was absolutely blown. I had never had to think about my skin tone. I only Mm -hmm. thought about my blackness. Mm -hmm. And so we were all black and we were all going through the same thing and we were all on the same page and we were all trying to fight the same demon. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Then, you know, not calling white people demon, but you know, the the demon of whiteness and patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So, you know, we're all, we were all in this together and this is so toxic and there's so much unlearning that has to be done Mm -hmm. from light-skinned people too. But to say that colorism doesn't exist, it does a complete disservice to our dark-skinned brothers and sisters who are literally unlearning so much heavy stuff yeah so much heavy stuff and so because yeah. it wasn't in the dialogue I didn't know that that was happening until I got to college mm-hmm. but even then I'm able to look at it and say oh yeah that was a privilege of mine because yeah. a little dark-skinned girl does not have that privilege because yeah. that little girl in that video learned that on the playground in pre-k mm-hmm. yeah this is like heavy stuff to unlearn yeah and this is real stuff to unlearn Mm -hmm. absolutely and I feel like I like that you said about um the privilege standpoint because I think to see how difficult it is for people to take accountability Mm -hmm. on their Mm -hmm. end like you know I have privilege in this Mm -hmm. and to accept that and you know, work past that. And I commend that mm-hmm. um, because you see it, whether it be white people, whether it be uh, even within our own community, it's like difficult to be like, well, you know, I didn't really have a hand in that. So mm-hmm. not really my problem, but it's like, it's everybody's problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like even light-skinned Black people have to unlearn. I'm better because I'm light-skinned. Yeah. Prettier because I'm mm-hmm. light-skinned. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm better because my hair texture is different. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. that's something that has to be unlearned. And that's a completely different unlearning because it requires realizing that while you're walking through your world, you're literally a fetish. (laughs) Like, that's literally what you're being treated as is simply a fetish and put on a very false, you know, pedestal. For mm-hmm. this. And not even just that, but your your beauty is only attributed to being something closer to white. Exactly. Absolutely. It's like a it's like a 
slap in the face almost in a way. Beautiful for me. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. That's the word. (laughs) Because you never get to be yourself. You never get to be Kashana. You never get to be Rashida. You never get to be Tori. You never get to be Santori. You are your skin tone in certain people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's not, oh, you're beautiful because of your personality. You're beautiful because, you know, you know, God blessed you with those cheekbones. And, you know, (laughs) like, that's not what it is. Like, you know, it's, oh, you're beautiful because of your skin tone. Or you're not as beautiful because of your very African features. Yeah. Like, you never get to be you. You're always this this thing in front of it first something you said Santori about um you're not as beautiful because of your very African features Mm. I just think it's interesting that we attribute one sort of a look Mm. to an entire continent Mm. Mm -hmm. it's like that also that miseducation because just because a person is of a lighter complexion and has certain features doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't come from a place in Africa yeah exactly that's an entire continent so like it's interesting and I want to go into something like when we talk about how that attributes to our understanding of blackness Mm -hmm. it's definitely been used almost like saying oh you have African features is almost like a slur like people people will use it at you as almost like you should be you're ugly yeah like I'm using this so that you are offended by it and it's mm-hmm. like excuse right. me what is there to be offended right. by yeah. yeah you just call me gorgeous like what are you yeah. saying like i don't understand <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. but again like the whole idea of quote unquote african features being oh because you're just so black is absolutely ridiculous and that's why when you try to explain it and say it out loud you feel like you sound crazy because it is crazy it's a crazy thing to say it's a crazy thing to even have to put into words because like you said Africa is so diverse so diverse like black women don't have the Eve gene for nothing like you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like everything Mm -hmm. comes from us so you can't just summarize African features to this one very specific idea and then try to use it as something negative against people. There's so much unlearning that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that is happening now and it's happening fast. And I really do appreciate that because if you want to put words and ideas into what like African features are being you know reference to when you say that quote unquote like then you're excluding an entire half of the mm-hmm. entire continent great we're completely forgetting that there are all kinds of different um countries within this continent and it's like when you say african features what are you speaking about because mm-hmm. typically yeah. it seems like it's you know these west african features are seen as being quote unquote most african when mm-hmm. you know ethiopians don't look like that Liberians mm-hmm. don't look mm-hmm. like that. I mean, Egyptians definitely don't look like that. So when you say African features, where? <laughs> like, yeah. What are you talking about? Right, specifically. Right. We've all said it. African features are still demonized, but like even at the same time, like where it's becoming a trend basically, um, in terms of celebrating blackness mm-hmm. to an extent. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um it's not a genuine celebration within media and within culture. Mm -hmm. So it's like, they're just sticking to this certain look. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And they're not really diving into different diversities and really, you know, pinpointing out different countries within this continent. There's also Jamaicans. There's like mm-hmm. so many different types of black people, but it's like, because it's such a trend, mm-hmm. when you stick to the trend, you just stick to the surface level things. Exactly. And you're not really mm-hmm. diving yes. deep into genuinely celebrating this race of people. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're just going to hop mm-hmm. on this trend and make it fun. But it's like, that's not mm-hmm. celebratory, nor is it um, genuine. I feel like part of that goes back to the miseducation thing that we were talking about before. Um, Cause this right. is like, this is a conversation that I've had with my boyfriend. He's Nigerian um, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, a first generation mm-hmm. Nigerian. So he definitely went through a lot of what you guys are talking about. And now mm-hmm. obviously there is this push for people to, you know, especially within our communities to find your roots and to, you know, look more at your ancestry and, I understand being upset and like, why did I have to go through so much trauma for y'all to finally get to this point? But then just think about how we're taught about Africa in school. We're not taught that Africa Mm -hmm. is as rich of a country as it is. Mm -hmm. So everyone is ashamed to be there. Like black people knew that they were from there at some point, but we're so far removed from it that I can just point fingers at someone else who can actually point to the country that they're from because, you know, that's not something that we were taught to ever be proud of. Um, you know you you, you're supposed to be ashamed of being from Africa you know Mm. you're supposed to be proud that Mm -hmm. you can be removed from that but I you know I understand why people are you know looking the other way like "Mm, y'all weren't with us when we were shooting in the gym but you know know, I also really you know I like that people are trying to unlearn these things and you know to try and decolonize themselves because yeah. there is a lot of unpacking and a lot of unlearning to do. And, you know, I think that going back to Africa, you know, mentally or whatever, is that first step. Because mm-hmm. I think it was Burna Boy who said before you were anything, you were African. And he's mm-hmm. not, you know, he wasn't wrong. Yeah, it was definitely a form of propaganda. Like, mm-hmm. just the ways in which Africa was painted via the U.S media yep. and the European yeah. media yep. painted in such a specific way so that way Europe has all of this gold mm-hmm. that they don't tell you that they got from Africa yep. that right. they stole from Africa right yep. so, you know Europe has this art and uh, uh, and this renaissance and then you know Africa's history started when the white man got there yep. and when they got yeah. there that was the image that you know, white media gave Black people, I will speak specifically for the U.S., as a way of further indoctrinating us. So you're constantly taught that in textbooks, documentaries, and the commercials where it was like, it's a penny a day to feed an orphan in Africa. Like, literally, like, all of those things, like, all of those things were literally things to indoctrinate us and keep us in line in the hierarchy mentally and then physically because we've been conquered mentally and the easy ways that is given to us about blackness and black people globally is made accessible to us because it is propaganda you have to dig so hard to find any morsel of truth about black anything whether it be Afro-Latinx history, Black American history, Black Afro-Caribbean history, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. African history, you know, Afro-European history, all of that. Mm -hmm. All of that is so hard to get your hands on, and they make it hard for a reason. 
I remember when I was doing student teaching and it was President's Day and they were talking about Abraham Lincoln and they started talking about the Civil War and it was like a cute little video for kids to understand because it was first graders and it was, you know, the Civil War happened, there was unrest, people fought in the war and then there were people that were in bondage. Like they didn't make the connection at all. So it's yeah. like from the very start, like if you're going to talk about it, let's talk about it for real. And like, let's really have the g- real conversations. Like, I get you're trying to like, you know, water it down for kids, but you could water it down and be honest at the same time. I hope you all enjoyed today's conversation, but the girls still have a tad bit more to say. So next week, we'll pick back up and finish off this conversation on colorism with part two. And stay tuned because in the following weeks, there will be all new guests leading us in a new discussion. You won't want to miss on what we have in store for you. Thanks as always for tuning in and stay safe, be blessed, and don't forget to vote. Bye guys.